All right, all right. Welcome to episode 21 of The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. My name is Christian A. Stetler, and I'm a professor in the social work department at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And this morning, for the first time, I'm broadcasting live from the Rocky Mountains in Ogden, Utah. And I got to say, it's hot as hell down here, especially coming from Juneau. You know, once in a while, once or twice a year, we might hit 80 if you're really lucky, but it's like 100 degrees here, super hot. And, uh, you know, I grew up here in Utah a long time ago, but I swear it didn't get this hot all the time. So uh, I don't know if it's the Great Salt Lake uh, drying up or lack of water or global warming or whatever, but it's definitely warmer here. And uh, I'm joined today by my intrepid student co-host, Sophia. And where are you at today, Sophia? Um, I'm currently in Valdez, Alaska, my hometown. Um, but I, I'm usually up in Fairbanks and it actually hit 92 degrees last week. So that, that was really hot for us. Yeah. And that's a trip. If you think about it, look up Fairbanks on a map just below the Arctic circle. It's, it, it's funny. Cause I think it can be the warmest and the coldest place in Alaska, depending on the time of the year. Oh yeah. But 50 degrees below zero is regular and it'll be frozen in what, less than a month probably, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So Yeah. Arctic Circle, Utah, it's hot. Uh, how are you doing today, Sophia? I'm doing pretty good, pretty good. Um, start off my um, morning with just like a hike in the backyard because, I don't know, um, Valdez is just full of waterfalls and mountains and oceans, so I'm trying to soak it up as much as I can. Right on. Where is Valdez on the map? I should know that. So it's South Central Alaska. Um, it's at the end of the pipeline, and it's like, the very last town you could drive to on the road system. <laughs> yeah, right on. How was it growing up there? Pretty good. Um, we got sun the past few days, um, and it's a rainforest area. So we usually get lots of rain, but fortunately, we got sun this weekend. Yeah, right on. Is it, is it on the road system or you have to fly in and out? Uh, road system. So very last town you could drive to. <laughs> right on. Mm-hmm. All right. Well... Uh, you want to go ahead and introduce Russ? Yeah, so this is our um, our speaker, Russ. Um, Russ has, oh, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I can't see you guys anymore. We can hear you. It's happened before, so just roll with it oh, and we'll see. Okay. If um, well, this is... We might have lost her. We did. All right, so we'll move forward. Uh, hopefully, we get Sophia back. But uh, me introduce Russ. Uh, first of all, what's up, Russ? Thanks for joining us. And uh, Russ, the biggest reason that motivated me to invite him to the show, which we'll talk more about later, but I saw a Facebook post by him recently. Um, uh, 22 years clean. Is that right, Russ? That's right. Right on. So it's clean date, May 3rd, 2001. He said he's introduced to recovery through a treatment center, which eventually led him to a 12-step recovery. In that 12-step 12 12-step 12 program, he's had the opportunity to serve in several different positions, group service representative, area vice chairperson, area chairperson, area treasurer, hospitals and, inst- and, hospitals and institutions. Uh, and his primary purpose in – or. Our primary purpose in 12 steps is to carry the message to the addict who still suffers. And that's what he aims to do. Um, And then to add to that, 
Russ, I went to, we've talked about this on the podcast a couple of times, but I went to treatment. I don't know the exact date like Russ does, but I went maybe a year after Russ, I think. And uh, same treatment center and somebody had introduced me to him. And so he was my first sponsor when I went uh, to treatment long, two decades ago. So I'm very uh, thankful to have you here, Russ. And uh, can't wait to talk story with you, but there's a few things that uh, we got to cover first. Let me just make sure Sophia's not back. She's not. All right. So. Uh, the critical social worker is supported by the social work department at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. However, we want to be clear that any opinions expressed on this podcast, whether by the host, guest, or listeners calling in, they don't necessarily reflect the values of the social work department, the College of Liberal Arts, or the University of Alaska Fairbanks in general, or any of its affiliates, or anybody else. The opinions and ideas shared here belong to the speakers alone. Uh, and that's important. If you don't like something that one of us says, I advise you to take it up with the individual or with the group during the podcast, or you can email me afterwards. If you want to take it up with the podcast uh, during the episode, feel free to use the chat box or to call in. We'll have opportunity for that later on. Um, if you have a real issue or concern, you can feel free to email me. My email address is C-A-S-T-E-T-T-L-E-R, C-A-Stetler at alaska.edu. Uh, so yeah, if you got a problem with one of us, just take it up with the individual, like I said. And uh, share our mission statement real quick. The, the Critical Social Worker podcast unfolds unique stories and diverse perspectives to foster critical dialogue, empathy, and understanding for all listeners. Through storytelling grounded in social work values, we aim to change ourselves and the world one story at a time. And one of those underlying themes of that mission statement is obviously the idea of telling stories. So we here at The Critical Social Worker, we believe that each individual is multi-layered with unique life experiences we want to help unfold some of those layers through stories that we can learn and grow from, stories that help build critical consciousness. Uh, and going back to the UAF Social Work Department, I want to throw a big shout out to them. They're the ones that support, I guess we, but the, the Social Work Department is the one that uh, helped put this podcast together, help get funding for it, all sorts of things. Uh, a lot of support coming from there. And uh, it's a great program if you're interested in a bachelor's in social work. We don't offer a master's at uh, UAF yet. But in my opinion, it's one of the best programs in the country. I've been a part of several uh, social work programs um, in several different states. And the big thing that I think about UAF social work um, is the, the time, care, and attention that you get that you don't always get at other placements. Very thoughtful. Uh, basically, we take care of you here at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. we got a big focus on indigenous uh, values, indigenous perspective, indigenous ideas, if you're into that kind of thing. Um, it's also very cheap and affordable. I encourage you to go, I'm not gonna say it all on here, but I encourage you to go compare the costs of tuition at UAF social work, and then go compare it to like USC online social work. Um, we're constantly rated in the top online BSW programs. Uh, you, can you can receive in-state tuition from anywhere in the world. So it's cool if you're in Alaska, but hey, if you wanna be in Hawaii or Utah or New York City or whatever, and complete your degree at, uh, at a more affordable cost, with more attention, care, and value, then I encourage you to look us up. UAF Social Work, just search us on Google or look us up on Facebook. Uh, what about you? Do you have a story to tell? Are you interested in coming on the show as a guest to tell your story, to share your stories? We believe everybody has a unique story to tell. So if you're interested in coming on the show, using this platform to share your story or your stories, we'd love to hear from you. So just hit me up either on here or uh, via the email address I already gave out. 
And if you value the critical social worker, you've been tuning in and you want to, a lot of people ask how they can support the podcast. The best way you could do that is by following us on call-in, which I must say that we might change platform soon, but for now, follow us on call-in. And then if you listen on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review on there. That's the best way that you can help. And I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, well, I think it's time we get this conscious party started for real. Hey, yo, everyone, gather around. It's story time. Brought to you by the University of Alaska Fairbanks, Department of Social Work, and the Conscious Party Productions. You are listening to The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. A conscious party. Revolutionizing our minds. Elevating our consciousness. Changing our worlds. Your story. My story. Our story. story. All right, all right. Well, welcome officially to episode 21 of The Critical Social Worker, a revolutionary storytelling podcast. Like I said, this is episode 21. And before we move forward, I just wanted to say something. I've said this a couple of times on the podcast, but it's been a goal of mine. I read an article a, way, a, a, a ways back when I was first uh, starting to get the podcast going. And it said that uh, 99% of uh, podcasts don't make it past the third episode. And then of those 1% that make it past the third episode, 99% of those don't make it past episode 20. So we're on episode 21, so it means we're survivors, and that puts us up in that top 1%, uh, you know, uh, succeeding and pushing forward. And so expect to keep seeing us. Welcome back, Sophia. Um, yeah, and I wanted to get started off with a real personal story, and I've shared bits and pieces of this um, throughout the podcast here and there. Uh, but going back about, uh, I don't know, I, I, don't, I lose track of time. You know, once I had kids and everything, I just lost track of it all. Stop, I don't need- even though, you know, milestones for my own children sometimes because things happen so fast. But um, just a little over 20 years ago, uh, I started using methamphetamines. Uh, my friends, my, I had some friends um, that I went to. I got dropped out, kicked out of school, basically. And I went to an alternative school and I met some friends there. And, you know, we used to do a lot of things. We used to go down by the river and drink beer. We used to smoke a lot of weed. And... Uh, one of those friends that I had at that school, we were hanging out one time and they had like a trailer outside of his house. And we were, I don't remember exactly, but we were probably smoking marijuana or something. And uh, his mom had just gotten out of jail. And he asked me, you, my mom wants to know if we want to come down and get high with her. And uh, I don't remember exactly how it went down, but we went down there. And, you know, I'm thinking like, uh, you know, go down and and, and smoke some marijuana, but she said she uh, had a light bulb with a pen. And I remember she did something to the light bulb. I don't remember, shook it out. And then she put some, some uh, crystals in there and we smoked it. And it made me like, it totally like changed my mind instantly. Um, and uh, they say it's what's called like spracked or tweaking, or there's different words for it, different adjectives. Well, um, it was exactly what I felt. My mind just lit. I used to be really reserved i'm still kind of reserved but i used to be this really reserved quiet person it just took totally took me out of my shell and uh, i used with that mom with my friend and his mother off and on for like a year just like uh every other weekend um russ try clicking your uh the mic thing down there and see if it's still on the roadcaster um anyways used with her with uh, my friend and his mom, just on the weekends here and there, you know, probably like 10 times over a year. And then uh, 
One of the one one day I had this other friend. His I nickname was. Anything. Can you hear me, Christian? Yeah, I can hear you. I can't hear you. I'll come try to help you in a minute. Um, just one second. We'll pop up from this house, and I went in that house, and it was like exactly what you'd expect from I don't know what you want to call it a crack house, a drug house, whatever. But it was dirty, nasty, unsavory folks all over the place. Uh, paraphernalia, just real, real, not a place to be in. We were walking out of there, and I was like, Bubba, what are you doing here? Like, how the hell did you sleep, fall asleep over in this place and stay here? I don't remember what he said or whatever, but uh, one year later, about a year later, I woke up in that same house. Long story short, I'll skip all the rest, but I started using daily, got involved in the drug game, using, selling. It's a total lifestyle. Um, and uh, when, when the shit hit the fan, it went down quick. People I knew got arrested. The lady, uh, my friend's mom that I was living with, she got arrested, lost her house. Next thing you know, I was on the streets homeless. And uh, at some point, I woke up in that house. And uh, when I woke up that morning, I had that memory of my friend Bubba. And I just knew I was done. And uh, the lady asked, the lady's house it was gave me 10 bucks and asked me to go get her some cigarettes from the store. I was like, all right, cool. And I walked to the store and uh, I bought a, Shows you how, how my, my knowledge of nutrition has changed since back then. But I bought a dozen donuts. And uh, I ate like two and a half of them and it started to make me feel sick. So I just kept walking and walking. And I walked to the hospital and I checked myself into treatment. I didn't know what I was doing. But I checked myself into treatment. And about, say, about 28, day, 28 days later is when I met Russ, somewhere around there. I think Russ actually came to speak like as a guest speaker for one of our evening sessions or something at the facility. Um, but then another lady that worked there, I think she was a counselor or something, she referred me to Russ and said, I think he'd be great to be your sponsor. And looking back now, knowing what I know, it's a good mix. It was a good match in some ways. We were both kind of quiet guys in some ways. And so it was kind of like, you know, like neither of us were really willing to take the first punch as far as like getting to know each other, if that makes sense. But uh, over time, Russ helped me a lot. I read all my 12 steps to him, I think twice, or at least in portions. Um, but uh, really changed my life that time, that uh, time period. And uh, I just want to, first of all, I want to say thank you, Russ, in, in introducing you and turning the mic over to you, you know. Uh, I think time slips away from us sometimes, you know. And uh, when we get a chance to sit back and, and look back on our lives, we're thankful for the people that we've come into to contact with. There's so many things that could have went wrong. When I went to treatment uh, at the same place that Russ did, um, I remember the guy in there, like the, I think he was like the manager or something, but I think his name was Mike, and he uh, sat me down the first day, and he's like, you know, I can't remember the exact stat he gave me, but it was like, you know, only like 5% of methamphetamine users stay off of the drugs. It was like a really low number. And he's all, but I think you're going to do it. I'm looking at you, and I think you're going to do it. And it gave me a little bit of hope. And uh, one quick story I wanted to share was uh, while I was in there, a wake-up moment. I quickly kind of became a leader within my little cohort, my little group of, uh, of uh, people in rehab. And uh, I was totally like faking it. Like, you know what I mean? I was saying everything I thought my, the counselor wanted to hear. And I was like, you know, all the other, I shouldn't say all the other, but many of the other uh, patients or clients or whatever you want to call them, uh, kind of looked to me for direction. And then we were sitting in our, we had a group session like once every day or something. And the counselor there, he's like, Chris, are you full of shit? And I was like, no, of course not. And then he's like, group, who thinks Chris is full of shit? 
And I was like, nobody's going to stand up. You know, I think some of them feared me. Maybe I was a little bit volatile back then. And uh, everybody stood up. Everybody thought I was full of shit. And so I had to change my game then and, you know, really open up and, and really look at what was going on with me. And as, as Russ, as we'll all discuss, it's, a, it's really a lifelong process with ups and downs, hills and valleys, high tides, low tides, good friends, bad friends, you know, good relationships, bad relationships. You got to go through it all and you got to stick with, with whatever you're doing. Um, and so with that, you know, I want to, I'd like to rather talk about Russ and I's relationship a little bit more through dialogue. And so I want to now uh, turn the microphone over to Russ and uh, I'd just like you to invite a, to, you to tell any story you'd like, Russ, and let us know something that epitomizes either where you came from or part of your recovery or something. Just give us a window in, into your life, if you don't mind. Okay. Yeah, I'll start with, uh, I'll start with one story from using, which will, which will qualify myself with, uh, I'll start with one story from using, which will, which will qualify myself uh, to be an addict. And a lot similar like you, like your story, I, I ended up in a lot of houses that people didn't belong in, um, you know, uh, to be an addict. And a lot similar like you, like your story, I, I ended up in a lot of houses that people didn't belong in. Um, you know, when I was using and I got, when I, when I found the, the crystal, um, the, the type of people I was around deteriorated real quick. Uh, there was one house that we went to, to, to cop on a regular basis. And I think they, they had abandoned their entire upstairs, like their kitchen had, you know, bugs, rodents crawling all over the stove with dishes that weren't done. Just everything was left a mess upstairs. And so when we went into that place, it was straight to the basement. And it wasn't much better, but it was a little bit better than the upstairs that had been abandoned. Um, but there was a, so, so one story. Um, so when I had my, so I had a son young and, and when, when he was first born in the first part of his early life, he spent a lot of time with me. And, uh, so I had him all the time and I was always pushing off using until he wasn't around, um, you know, late at night when the house was asleep, I would get up, I would go out and try to get back before the house woke up and try to prepare, try to pretend like I was sleeping. Um, but this, uh, this particular night, the, my addiction just, it called, it was too strong. I could not, I could not go without it. And, uh, there was one, there was one fourplex that I went to, to, to hook up and, and three out of the four spots in that fourplex I could hook up with and get my fix. And, uh, and I took him, I took him with me on this particular night and I went in to, to cop and it took a long time. They didn't want people going in and out of the door. You know, they didn't want to, you know, people were paranoid. I mean, all the dealers were paranoid. I was paranoid. And, uh, it wasn't a place that you could go in and out of on a regular basis. So I went in and I was there for a while, what seemed like forever to me. Um, and I'm sure, I'm sure it was forever for, for my son. And he was probably about 18 months, two years at the time. 
And so I didn't want to take him into the place. I didn't want to compromise him. So I left him in the car. And I was in there, I would say it was probably an hour. I'd say I was probably in there for an hour. And I started to get real worried about him, just leaving him outside in the car. And so I went out to check on him. And uh, me and and his relationship was awesome because he was always with me. And uh, I went out to check on him and he was so excited to see that I was back to be with him. Like we were leaving and, uh, and I wasn't back to leave. I was just there to check on him and I left him again and I marched back inside to cop. And, uh, that wasn't the end for me. That wasn't the end of my using. Uh, but that, but that one stuck with me. That one affected me on a deep level that I had put using over the care, the safety of my son and that I was that I was out of control and using and I continued on and I continued on as far as I could until basically I couldn't pay rent anymore because I was stealing my own money from my own household to use um I ended up in my parents basement with my son his mom and and I just kept getting caught in lies lie after lie after lie I would that I would tell so that I could use. And I tell that story because that story, when I, in recovery, when I've thought about using, when I've fantasized about it, like it might be a good option for me, uh, that story always comes up and uh, I get to relive it. And it's really helped me many times to just keep pushing on. Like I'm not gonna use today, you know, push that stuff off till tomorrow. You know, maybe I get loaded tomorrow um, because I didn't ever want to feel like that again. And um, that's that's been a big driving force in my recovery and in my relationship with my son that I was never going to do that to him ever again. Yeah, I could sense the, you know, both the feeling of emotion from you and in and, and your voice and, and also see it in your face that, you know, you get a little emotional just talking about that story. So I appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing that with us. What was it that made you go to treatment? Like, how did that go down? It was basically, I just, I just kept getting caught using and, you know, I would, I would get a job. I think in the year 2000, I think I had seven different jobs. I would get hired. I'd work for a few days. I'd get a paycheck and I'd use, and then I would lie about getting paid. And I just kept getting caught in lie after lie after lie. And so my son's mom and my parents, it came to a point, they said, you know, you got to like, you got to clean up or you got to get out. And my son's mom, you know, she said, I'm, I'm done. I'm done here. Like I'm leaving. I'm taking your son with me. And my parents were like, you can't live here. And so I was at a crossroads where I had to do something different and they all wanted me to go to treatment. And so I became willing to at least do that. Yeah, did, going back to that little, uh, I don't know if you could hear me then, but I was talking about a story about um, in, in uh, treatment, how you know, I had an aha moment where they called me out and you know, told me I was full of shit. I was wondering if you had any you know, moment, whether in treatment or after or whatever, where you, you just believed something about yourself and you became disillusioned of it and you, and you changed the way that you thought about it or looked at yourself. Well, there was a lot of, a lot of little things like that. And I think like you, I became in, in my group, 
and the people that I went through treatment with, and then my group setting, that aftercare program was set for, I think it was set for two years, and you go every week and report back, you know, and and I always thought that my stuff looked clean, like I had gone to enough meetings, I had done enough things, I'd worked on my step enough to sign off with this group that I was doing well. Um, but yeah, there was a point. So I, at some point after I had gone through treatment and got out and I was attending the aftercare group, um, I got, I got this job and a couple of the guys that I worked with, they would go, they would go blaze it up on lunch breaks and they asked me to go with them. I think I, I think I turned them down a couple of times and then finally it was like, you know, these are, these are my coworkers. Like I work with them every day. So for me to just sit back here during lunch seems weird. Um, I went with them and I think I, I think I resisted one time and the next time, the next time I was partaking and and just like a good addict that I had practiced for so long, I, I lied about that. Um, and then I got presented with an opportunity to take a, take a drug test to prove that I wasn't using and I, I denied that. And I basically had to go back to that aftercare group and get honest because I think that that counselor that you referred to, he could see right through me. And so he started questioning me. I had to come clean with the group. And that was the last time I used was that relapse after, after five months or so of being clean, I relapsed and then I got real and I got honest. And that's when I found the 12 step group that I prefer and the one that I continue to go to now. Yeah, right on. So I just, just to intersect our stories a little bit. Um, when I got out of, of the, the treatment center, you know, I participated in the 12 step recovery every day, pretty much. I mean, and not, I mean, not, I did actively work it on myself, but I mean, I literally went to meetings. I didn't have anything else to do. All my friends were drug addicts or lost in the wind or dead or in jail. And, uh, it really, uh, you know, helped me. And the the uh, state of recovery in northern Utah back then, and I, I hope we can discuss a little bit about how it's changed. But back then, and this is this would be like, I'm just guessing the year, like 2002 or something, 2003. And um, there was all kinds of things going on. It was a really good time to be in recovery. There were, it was flooded with young folks. I know that, you know, they say not to date for a year, you know, but there were plenty of males and females that were younger that allowed us to interact with each other. They had things like um, softball every Sunday where it was just like, uh, you know, how they have, I've, this is the only place I've ever done this before, you know, like pick up basketball, you know, where people go to the park and you got next or whatever. Well, they had this with uh, softball and um, it just kept getting bigger and bigger so that we had like teams of like 30 each or we'd have to have more than one team. And I know Russ was there too. And we played softball together later, but it was things like that. Um, in addition to there were like conventions, there were uh, camp outs, there were, you know, like volleyball tournaments. There was, uh, 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 you know, they had at the Alano club, they had dances, which could be good or bad sometimes, but it was, it was fun to go. <laughs> and, uh, it was just a really great time. So I was wondering if, Russ, you could share two things. One, like, how did it help you? I mean, you, I know that we're, you know, anonymity uh, and anonymous and, we, and, and, and the many recovery programs don't want 
you know, their names or specific stories and whatnot in the media. But I was wondering if you could like in general share the spirit of like the way things that things were and how that helped you push you forward, whether that's friendships or, you know, you, I know you did a lot of, you've done a lot of service, things like that. What are some of the things that helped you, you know, in those early days? Yeah, for sure. Uh, the early days, that Sunday softball, I mean, that's the first place I've seen it too. And it, it did seem like it got so big and so many people were attracted to it that we're like, well, we're doing this on Sunday. We should probably just put teams together and play in leagues around the community. And so we did that. And I remember, I remember the idea when I started my first team, it was like, okay, this is going to be a recovery team. Um, but it was early recovery. So like you said, the 4%, 5% of people who stay clean, it's like people fell off and pretty soon we were missing a, missing a team. And eventually I just brought on people that were not addicts and that part took, it was like, well, just don't do it at the game, please. You know, we got some people in recovery here and it seems like most people respected that. Um, but yeah, that really helped me a lot. And, and finding, so I started, I started in one 12 step fellowship, which led me to a group of people in another 12 step fellowship. And yeah, I'm trying to stay anonymous because the level of press radio and films, you know, um, but there were some people that were fired up, really fired up about recovery in the, in the fellowship that I found. And they were loud in my face. Tell me the truth. Kind of like uh, you were talking about in your aftercare group when they said you're full of shit. <laughs> These people were telling me that all the time, every day. And, and really, like in my using, I had basically convinced myself that it was someone else's fault all the time. I never took responsibility for any decision I made. I blamed everything on somebody else. And so to start to learn to take some responsibility and kind of have these cheerleaders, kind of coach-like leaders leading me and basically just believing in me. And that's what led me to, that's what led me to service positions is I had people saying, you know what, you'd be good at this position. You should do it. And I, I was just taken back. Like me, that like, you think I could do that? And they're like, yeah, you'd be great at it. And so just taking those initial steps into service kept me connected with the recovery community and those relationships. But um, I do want to give a shout out to that time period. It's like, it's like an outlier situation. Like that time period in this place in Northern Utah, recovery was, it was welcoming it seemed like we did things that were fun that made it attractive and kind of cool to be clean. And it was the first time in my life that I ever thought being clean was ever going to be cool because before I got clean, I was like, I don't want to live that life. You know, I plan on using until I die. And so, yeah, a lot of those events, um, camp out, stuff like that. I was always going on those and they kept me connected to recovery. And I, I stayed connected, like all my friends, in early recovery, it seemed like I made that switch. And that was huge for me in my recovery because I didn't really hang out with anybody who was using. It's like all my friends and family became the rooms um, of that 12-step program. And so those relationships continue to cultivate and build and, and help me through times where, like I, I got clean when I was 20. And so I always had a plan to, to use when I turned 21 it's like, that's always going to be a day. And I even, I even told them 
you know, almost like a goodbye, like a farewell, like, okay, I'm going to turn 21. So I'll see you guys later. And they're like, they call me out on it. They're like, there's no way you're, there's no way you're throwing this away for that. And it's like, at that point I had done enough step work and enough work on myself and I had built my life in recovery to where it would have been weird for me to leave. Like I was connected. Yeah. And it's funny how, you know, when you bring up like uh, being 21 felt the same way. Right. But I was a little bit behind you. When I turned 21, I was using, I was using meth and uh, I had lost my ID. I didn't have any, you know, when you're in that life, you don't, the bar don't do nothing for you anyways. So they would just freak me out probably. And so I never partied on my 20, well, I might've partied. I don't remember exactly, but I definitely didn't go to the bar and wasn't, wasn't drinking alcohol. But, um, you know, speaking of that, for me, like our paths went uh, very different directions in some ways about the point that we're talking about now, you know, a couple of years after, after being out of treatment and participating. And uh, my life was still pretty good for the most part. But uh, man, I had some, some major struggles with alcohol. And I wasn't like, you know, um, if you read the, the big book, it, you know, they talk about alcohol as you know, hiding gin under your pillow and stuff like that. And I wasn't that. I never have been. But, uh, you know, when I drank, I drank a lot. And um, I was a really good drinker, which means you're also a really bad drinker because nobody is a good drinker. And when you drink a lot, one of those times, you're not going to have the right food in your stomach or you're not, you're going to make a bad decision or you're going to be emotionally upset based on some kind of relationship or something. And uh, again, like I said, my life didn't take, didn't spiral into hopelessness again. But I got in trouble a couple times. I got arrested. I got in a fight. I got arrested. Actually, when we were playing softball with Russ was on my team. We had the best team in the league that year, a co-ed team. I don't know if you remember the young guns. We had uh, Tanya and Brooke from, from my work. They were killer. And we had, I don't remember exactly who was all on the team, but it was great. And um, at that time, I got, I got arrested and they sent me to jail for 30 days. So I, had, I was so devastated. I missed out on that season. It's funny how we think about things at, that, at, at certain times, but I was devastated. I was in jail and I was just sitting there thinking like, man, They've got a softball game tonight, and those fuckers are playing without me. Blah blah blah. <laughs> but anyways, I did get out, and uh, we didn't. I think we lost the championship game that year. But I remember I was in that same treatment facility, and uh, it was with a different counselor, the evening counselor, or whatever. I was only in there part time or whatever. The, I was court ordered to go, and uh, she let me uh, skip out on a couple weeks so that I could go to our playoff games, which I thought was really kind of her because they didn't really usually let you do stuff like that. But she could see how important it was to me. But anyways, um, you know, over the years, uh, I've, I've flirted with alcohol to different degrees, some of it not troublesome and, and sometimes very troublesome. I got charged with a couple of DUIs. I didn't get convicted, but I just made all sorts of bad choices. I had bad relationship choices. Um, and, uh, you know, when it comes down to it, what I realized at this point in my life is that it just doesn't work for me. It just, it just simply doesn't work for me. You know, um, I've got a family and kids and to look out for and whatnot. And I just can't, I can't do it anymore. Um, it's an easy choice for me today. Whereas before it was so, I was so torn about alcohol for so long because in some ways, you know, I had so much fun and I had friends and it was, it was great. Like some of the funnest times were, were there, but like when I look at the downfalls of it, it just doesn't fit with my life. It doesn't, it doesn't fit. And so I guess my question is to you, and then you touched on it a little bit, but, you know, 22 years 
you know, although you ask people not to drink at the game, I, I know people that have when you were there, maybe even including myself. I don't remember for sure what yet games that you were at, but I know that it changed, changed that way. I know, I remember, I don't remember when this was, but I also remember you talking to me at some point about people were asking you to go to the bar and uh, you were thinking about it. I don't know if you ever went, I mean, not to drink, but you were going to go with them and, and hang out. But I mean, even like marijuana, you know, marijuana over the last 20 years has changed significantly. Even in Utah, you know, it's much more accepted and commonplace everywhere. And so, you know, how do you maintain that resolve, that commitment? Because it's one thing to maintain a healthy life, which is also hard, but to, to literally remain abstinent for 22 years with all of the, the polls, and I'm not even necessarily speaking towards meth or the other things, but like that too. But, you know, how do you, how do you, I just, it's a true testament to you, Russ. This is 22 years, you know, and we have, an, I, we have another couple friends that are up there too at that time that I just respect the hell out of you guys because, you know, uh, not saying that the way that you all are doing it, abstinence is the only way or, or whatever. Everybody has different ways to do things, but that's just a hell of a level of commitment. And all the times that you must have come across or somebody asked you or you just had a thought about it to bring yourself back it's just a true testament to who you are, your character and your, the resolve of who you are as a human being to maintain that for that long. And so I guess my question is, is, you know, like, how did you how did you avoid falling into those those potholes in the road in your road of recovery? Well, a lot of it. So, I mean, you're right as far as like like right now with like the current times there are people who do a lot of, uh, what do they call it? I think I want to say damage control, but I think it's something different. Harm reduction, harm reduction. So where, where there's a, there's a lot of nonprofit organizations out there that help addicts on the street, maybe just live a better life while they're using, like they're not trying to get them clean, but like, here's some, here's some shampoo, here's some toothbrushes, here's some clean needles, like, like, don't, like, if you're going to do this, like, it's up to you to do it, but like, don't go so bad, you know? And so I know, I know as far as recovery goes, um, and in the current times, like there, there are people who will, their story is like, they'll get off meth, they'll get off alcohol, they'll get off heroin, and they choose to partake in marijuana. And it seems like that's, that's a path that can work for people. Like I've seen people's lives improve and, and I'm kind of, I don't even know if it's old school, but it seemed like when I got clean, there was a lot of, there was a lot of people in recovery kind of yelling at me to do stuff. And they, they didn't really hold back with how, how they, they said to do recovery. And that was to be clean. Um, and like you said, like, like softball eventually got to where there were people using I mean, there were people drinking and, and my idea of, of people partaking back then was like so black and white where I was like, okay, well I'm clean and they're using, and it's almost like using's not really a term to describe it really. Like they're partaking, they're non addicts, none of my business. Um, but every time I look at it and every time I analyze it and see where I might go, if I were to partake. And I just, I just can't see how it won't lead me to destruction. Um, 
because you know they say that like being an addict or or being in the grips of addiction it's not just about the substance you're using like that's just a symptom so like i'm still obsessive and compulsive in other ways and uh, you know they talk about recovery being like a just for today program or one day at a time or it's a daily reprieve like it really is that for me um like I have to work on this stuff every day or it's probably working on me in some way, shape or form. And I think through step work, looking at myself, all of my assets and liabilities. Um, and like the further I get away from that use, you know, they say that they say that addiction is progressive, incurable um, and fatal. And and when I think about what I want my story to be, like I would hate to have my story be that I was clean for a certain amount of time and then I used and then I died. Cause I mean, I see it, I see it with people that I meet in the rooms, you know, they'll put together some clean time. They'll go out, use one time and they're dead. Um, I have, uh, there was a sponsee that I had. I, I mean, I absolutely love this kid and he was funny. He was, he was fun to be around. He had a lot of people that liked him and cared about him. Um, and he would put together short periods of clean time and then he would use and, and one time he used and he didn't wake up and he left behind a daughter, a family that loved him. And so a lot of experiences like that, I just think the risk is just not the reward for me, not worth the reward for me. Um, a few moments of bliss, like I can pass that up if if I'm also passing up the risk of dying, being imprisoned. Um, and like I said, that story that I told in the beginning, I don't think I ever want to look at my kid in the face if I use. And so, because I don't, I don't ever want to see that that little boy in him look at his dad and be disappointed. So... That's been a lot of it. Um, but like currently in my life right now, I mean, things are so good. Things are so good in my life right now. Like I've got zero complaints. I still complain, but I have no reason to because um, like my work is good. Um, I'm in a relationship right now that's incredible. You know, we reciprocate love, understanding, patience, all that stuff, back and forth, all the time, every day. And that's all I've ever really wanted is just have, you know, a, a partner, a relationship that was like good both directions, um, supportive. And uh, I'm in a good relationship with my son right now. He's 24 now. And he's out there living his life, taking on risks. Uh, he's leaving today to go travel to Florida for some work. And I'm just, I'm just so pleased about it. I would, I would hate to want to do some to taint that or not be aware, not be around for that. And one of the things I like you said at the very beginning was, uh, I can't remember exactly the words that you used, but basically you said that you're, you didn't want your story to be that you wanted your story to be something, something different. And I think the powerful part of that is the ability to choose your own story. Um, oftentimes, you know, relapses or using or whatever, it's circumstantial, right? You were in this place and it happened. And that's not the story that the individual wanted for themselves. So the circumstance changes that. Um, and one of the things, we don't have to discuss this, but one of the things that I've struggled with teaching substance abuse and studying recovery and whatnot 
is that when I went through, um, you know, there's this, the sense of, of powerlessness when we get too deep into it, but powerlessness. And it really helped me because it, uh, you know, I made tons of bad choices doing things my own way back in the days and even still sometimes. Um, but, uh, something that I've realized as I've gotten older is, uh, while it's cool and it's good to be, to have humility, I also have the power to write my own story. And if I want my story to be this, I have all the power in the world to make that my story. Um, and so I think that if, you know, if you're listening to this and, you know, you work with folks in recovery or you're in recovery or whatever, I think, you know, some things work at some point in our lives and they may not be so applicable later on, or they, we may change our views or change the way that we look at things. You know, even the, I always talk about the serenity prayer, um, the serenity prayer, you, uh, um, you know, it's, it gives a sense of, of, of letting go of letting things take place. You know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change things I can, the wisdom to know the difference. It's really good. And I used to say it every night, like literally, um, and I'd break it down in, in, you know, what I was doing, what I was, uh, praying and meditated and whatnot. Um, but I took a class with Angela Davis and I talk about her often on here, but the, the class was really transformative for me when I was, uh, going to, University of Hawaii for my master's degree. I took a class with, we had Angela Davis was guest speaking, or not guest speaking, she guest taught. She was at the university guest teaching for the semester. I had the the, uh, fortune to um, be able to take that class with her. But she said, and this had nothing to do with recovery or anything like that, but she said, I am no longer using the serenity prayer and I changed it. And she says, I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm changing the things I can no longer accept. And that really empowered me because there were things that I didn't think I could change. And it really like clicked for me that, you know, I could, I have the power to create my own destiny. I can't control everything. I can't control every circumstance in the world. But once you shift that pattern and you're, you know, you put yourself on that positive spiral, everything seems to like get caught up in that almost like how a tornado picks things up. And uh, like Russ, now my life is great today. I couldn't, I mean, just like him, I do complain, especially to my, to my family sometimes. But for the most part, you know, like um, college professor, beautiful wife, beautiful kids, not broke. It's more than I ever expected for myself. So how could I be anything but elated to be where I'm at? And so um, that brings me to my next question to you, Russ, is how have things changed for you over 22 years? What are some things, or even just one thing, or what are what are some things that have, that have changed? Your perspective is different now. I know when we spoke uh, yesterday, you were talking about, um, you know, where it was your life before. Now it's supplemental to some degree. And so how have things changed? What's what's different for you now? Or how has that evolved for you over 22 years? Well, like you said, that story, that story is powerful. And, and when we decide that we want our story to be something different, um, it seems like what's changed for me in my recovery and uh, as of the last few years um, is taking more responsibility in, in creating that story, that different story that I want it to be. And it seemed like a lot of through a lot of my recovery and I guess growing up, because, you know, we look at this as we can look at this as uh, 22 years of recovery, but it's really been like, yeah, I got clean when I was 20. And over these last 22 years, I've grown um, inside recovery, outside of recovery, through relationships, through failures, through trying things. Um, and I think a lot of where I've 
I've had problems with my story is when I decided I didn't want to be like, didn't want to have like a star role, you know, where I took backseat or I kind of allowed, um, someone else to tell the story and I got a small part and maybe not a good part. And over the last few years, it's become clear to me that it's my responsibility to write my story. And, and a lot of what I do to create a different story is to really tell myself the truth, which is one of the, one of those things that I've been building on to like my truth in being around people that have used. And like you, you mentioned a little bit before, I don't want to backtrack too far, but you mentioned before like that I had gone to bars and like, that's really frowned upon in recovery to go into using settings because it's high risk, right? Like you go to the barbershop long enough, you're probably going to get a haircut. Um, but one of the things for me in that is I've just explored my truth and, and like my truth is that I don't use, I'm not a person who uses, I'm not a person who gets drunk. I'm not a person who, and this is not a judgment on anyone else, but like, I like to be in control. I like to, I like to be able to dictate when I'm going to be somewhere, how I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there in a safe manner. Um, you know, and I talk about that through giving people rides home from, you know, when they were intoxicated and couldn't, couldn't get home on their own. Um, that's really driven home for me. Like my truth is that I don't do that. I'm the driver and, and kind of in my story at this point, like I want to drive, you know, I want to make decisions. I want to, I want to listen to the promptings that come up within me and live that way and live honestly. And it seems like when I betray myself and, and don't say what I want or I, I stuff it down like, oh, no, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. And it's something I battle with all the time because I do want more and better in my life. So um, I still have to explore that truth and follow it. And I like that. I like the way you twisted. You were saying Angela Davis talked about that serenity prayer. It's like, yeah, like I'm no longer willing to accept being treated poorly in my relationships um, having people around me that are that are too negative for me that that affect me in a negative way, um, like I'm not going to accept that anymore. I'm going to put people in my world that want to be there, that want me around, that want to be around me, and that have something good to bring. And so, recovery, relationships, family members, friends, whether it's recovery or not, I got to have people around that are bringing something good. Yeah, I like that. What about um, what about other things that you don't that you uh, f- have to find outside of the rooms? For example, um, when uh, when I was younger, you know, I talked about about nutrition, you know, and buying the the dozen donuts on an empty stomach, you know, where I there's, I could think of many things that would have helped me a lot better at that point. But um, you know, as I've gotten older, I've realized health is a you know, and even having children, you know, I want to be alive for. A, a long time, you know, I want my life to be halfway over and not most of the way over. And uh, also just in the way that I feel and taking care of myself. So what other things have you done to improve the quality of your life, you know, over these 22 years? Um, you know, I think about the diet that I had back in the days. And sometimes the rooms don't help in that regard, you know, coffee, sugar, cigarettes. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
you know, with they're well intentioned, but you know, I enjoyed going out and smoking cigarettes on the breaks. So I'm not gonna lie, I enjoyed it great, uh, you know, thoroughly. But it was unhealthy, and I really had to check myself at at you know once I got up in, towards the 30s or into the 30s, and and um, you know I've changed a lot. You know, I look at myself. Exercise is important. I'm not like dogmatic about any of this stuff, but you know, I I call it like conscious living. You know, being aware of what I'm doing, being a, not saying that I'm perfect in what I do put into my body, but at least I'm aware of it. You know, I, I acknowledge it and I, I have to, you know, um, look at it for what it is versus just just putting it in there. And uh, I was wondering if you have any any tips or I mean, not necessarily tips, but, you know, what other ways have you found that you needed to improve your life to become uh, one of the th- other things? Uh, I have a uh, an old mentor. She passed away a couple of years ago. Her name was Grandmother Rita Blumenstein. And she would always say that many of us, you know, we got trauma in our backgrounds we have hard things that we have whatever but we got a hole in ourselves h-o-l-e a hole and she said well in order to you know transform your life you gotta fill the hole to make yourself whole again h-w-h-o-l-e and so for part of that for me was family you know starting a family um eating healthier you know obviously abstaining from from substances that are harmful to me um, exercise, creating good relationships and friendships. You know, I had to, I don't want to necessarily say cut off friends, but I had realized at some point, and this is actually quite recent in, in re, not like yesterday, but you know, in the last, you know, six or seven years is that I had friends that I'm not saying they were bad friends or they didn't love me or didn't care about me, but they just did not align with what the story that I was trying to write. It didn't align. They didn't fit into my story. And um, I had to, to cut them. And that was a health cho- healthy choice for me um, because they were doing, they were, they had stayed the same and I had changed, if that makes sense. Or even maybe we had both changed, but in different, you know, um, div- divergent paths. So Russ, what have, what have you changed or what have you done that's, you know, filled that hole and made you more whole in yourself, whether that's nutrition or friends or whatever, what, what are some of the other things that you have to do outside of the rooms? Yeah. So, um, there's been a couple of times in, in my recovery where I put on a lot of weight because I was trying to fill that hole and I would eat, you know, poor choices in health, poor choices in diet. Um, but yeah, at this point, there, it was probably four years ago, I I had a friend that was encouraging me to go to the gym. And I mean, he's a monster. He's just huge. And uh, I had joined the gym so many times and, and not gone that I was like, I'm going to be careful before I commit to this, make sure that if I commit that I'm going to show up. And so it took a few months of him in my ear, encouraging me to join the gym and, and work out with him. And, uh, I eventually signed up. I'm one of the people that signed up on like January 2nd. So I'm, I'm that new year sign up gym guy, but it's, but it's stuck. Um, so for the last four years, I go to the gym four or five, six, seven days a week sometimes um, just because I, it makes me feel better. It makes me feel more whole, you know, and then, and then the diet thing. And, and this is debatable because I think people eat what makes them feel good, whether that's vegetarian, vegan, carnivore, keto, I think to each his own. Right. And so I've debated with people what's healthier, what's better, but um, I know what's, 
better for me, what makes me feel good, like what makes me feel like I'm taking care of myself and giving myself the nutrition that I need. Um, and I've had real, I've had bouts where I've been really disciplined at that. But it seems like, seems like in my life I could be really good at one thing at one particular time. And so lately my diet hasn't been amazing, but I feel it when I don't eat well. And the next day it's like, okay, well, I got to eat nutritious food today because I don't like the way that made me feel. And so I get back to it, maybe work out a little bit harder, but that that's one thing. Um, and then I think with uh, technology and the availability to, to listen to like podcasts like this one, um, I think we have, we have so many tools that are at our fingertips where we can, where we can either put good things in our life or put bad things in our life. And it just seems like my pursuit continually wants to be better. Like I, I, I'm aiming up, I'm aiming in that direction. I'm trying to be better all around as an individual. And so I listen to podcasts on psychology, mental health, nutrition, um, you know, I'm, I'm a man, so I listen to masculine type podcasts cause I want to be a better man. And so when I hear things that I want to try out, I try them out and, and that seems to be been really helpful for me. Yeah. Right on. Thanks for sharing that Russ. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Sophia in just a minute here. Um, but I always throw in, you know, it's called the critical social worker looking at things critically. And so we've talked, we floated a little bit you know, how recovery has changed. And we don't want to get into too many specific details about different programs and whatnot. Um, but, you know, we were talking about, we were reminiscing on softball and all the events like that, the, you know, the youth and recovery and the eventfulness of it back then. Um, it seemed when I, you remember I was talking about how when I got in that fight and I had to go back to treatment and, and go back. Mm-hmm. And, and there were two things that were different for me. One is I wasn't in, although I drove to Ogden for that, facility i was actually living in salt lake city at the time and so when i was trying to participate in actual uh recovery it was in a different different area and i didn't i don't know if it was me that had changed or it was different out there or recovery in general had changed but i just didn't quite vibe with it as i had in those early northern or i shouldn't say northern utah but ogden ogden area days and uh that was still a long time ago that's talking i'm talking about like 15 years ago or something like that and so in recent years, you know, I've started to be more knowledgeable because I teach, I teach about substance abuse and I've all, you know, I always wanted to, my dream was always to open up a treatment facility. So, um, I've always been interested, super interested in it, but it seems like, uh, you know, one of the things that's obviously changed, I just assigned my students, um, one of their projects was to, uh, attend a couple of meetings as a guest and, uh, reflect upon it. Um, and, most of the students went online, which wasn't obviously wouldn't have been available back then um, and probably became even more heightened through the pandemic as, you know, a lot of meeting spaces were closed. Yeah. Um, but how, so two-folded question. One is just, you know, a little bit about how it's changed. Like how do I, I, I think that having rooms available online, meetings available online or, or um different ways to participate in recovery is good because it makes it accessible and people that can't make it out. And obviously during the pandemic and stuff like that. But sometimes when we do that, like for example, for example, as a, as a teacher, as a professor, it's great that I can teach students from everywhere, you know, I have students all over, all over Alaska, all over the United States. 
the one thing that's missing is the human contact element, you know, of us handing each other papers and shaking each other's hands and staying after class to talk. And that's where I learned a lot was in those moments. Um, and so you lose something with that, right? With the loss of human, the humans actually gathering in a circle and, and, and talking, dialoguing, sharing, giving each other hugs. Hugs would be a big part of it, I guess, physical contact. Um, so what's the, what's the pros and cons of how it's evolved? And then the critical part of the question I want you to answer is, what are we missing? And it doesn't have to be right now or anything specific, but what are we missing that we're not, um, that we need to do a better job at providing opportunities or different, you know, opportunities for care or whatever for people that are struggling with addiction? Like, where, where are we missing the ball? Like, what can we do to, like, take it to another level or shift something? Does that make sense? It makes sense. That's a, that's a tough question. That's a tough question you ask. Um, just because I know, I know I like, I see a lot of different things that, that will be helpful in different situations, but like you, like you were talking about with, uh, with the technology and with the pandemic, like recovery still went on, but it definitely suffered. It definitely suffered. I know for myself, I went to, uh, I ended up on a Marco Polo group. And it, it grew to, I think, I think the app would allow like 200 members in that. And so we had a Marco Polo group that was recovery based and it, it seemed like it was uh, pretty diverse from across the country. Um, and then and we were checking in on there. So it's possible to find recovery and connection through apps, you know? Um, but like you said, that human connection. And I know for me, I know for me, a lot of times the most valuable conversations I have or like the most meaning I get from a meeting is there's something shared in a meeting and it's in a group setting. So you can't really discuss it very well. And so after the meeting, maybe somebody approaches you or me and, and says, well, you said this and I really relate to that. This is what I'm going through. And then pretty soon an hour after the meeting, you're in the parking lot. You don't know where time's gone. And you're just deep in a conversation with somebody that they really find meaningful. And I've had lots of conversations like that, that I think, yeah, you don't get with, with the technology. And so I do think there's missing something. Um, the connection part is really important because disease isolates us. The disease of addiction isolates us to where we're isolating alone. We're lacking connection. And one thing that recovery does is connect us and we get that human touch. We get that, you know, eye contact and uh, we get eyes tearing up. I know when I, when I'm listening in a meeting and someone's going through something, something big, something deep, something painful, and they're emotional, I feel it. And, and that's a huge thing. Um, so that's one thing I know that, I don't know if we have time to get into get into this, but there is something about having a thriving recovery community at a certain time. You know, like you you mentioned Ogden back in the day, it was thriving. When we had some of the meetings were an hour and a half long because they had to be because there were so many people to give people the opportunity to share. You had to have meetings ninety minutes. Um. And then during the pandemic, when all that stuff shut down, it took a minute for meetings to get back up and going. And now I'm in a different community as far as recovery goes. Um, it's not Ogden. 
Like right now, Ogden seems like it's trying to gain some footing again and get back to where it used to be. But right now, it's a it's a, it's Davis County is thriving. Like the people in Davis County, it seems like they they got back into meetings, they got back into connection, it grew, um, it got me connected again because I've spent time in recovery where I've distanced myself from the rooms and meetings, and I was just out there trying to live my best life clean, but I wasn't connected to the rooms and, uh, and right now I feel pretty connected and I've got a solid group of men that I sponsor, which helped me. My sponsor's active, which helps me. Uh, I've got people challenging me to work steps, like actually do the writing and that's been good. So I think you asked that question. That's such a tough question. Um, but I think telling people the truth um, about your own story that they can identify with is important. And so for me, how I provide solution is just try to show up, show up, share my story. Um, you never know who out there is checking out recovery for the first time and they might identify. So I have an obligation to speak up, tell the truth about my story so that I can get those people to reach out to me after the meeting and connect with me and I'll invite them to keep coming back. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, so we might talk a little bit more in just a minute, but in the sense of time, I want to turn it over to Sophia and we already have a couple questions. So Linnell and, and Kim, we'll get to your questions and open it up for anybody else after Sophia's uh, uh, takes over the mic for a little bit. So it's all yours, Sophia. Okay. Um, well, I don't know. I'm like blown away. Russ. like uh, 22 years. That's, that's pretty wild. Um, so like, I don't know how to word this correctly, but like in the beginning stages of recovery, like what, how, how was your inner monologue? Do you feel like you were like fighting against yourself a lot or were you just like at, at a, like a, a state of mind where like, there was just like nothing going on or just like, what was it like mentally? Mentally, I was, well, I was trying to, when I got clean, there was a, there was a loss in the relationship I was in. Um, so as far as like my coping, my coping mechanism was removed immediately. So I got clean, I gave up the drugs and then I went through a period at that, and at that time in my life was just full of pain, emotional pain. I didn't have my son with me anymore every day. Um, and I guess my mindset was looking for somewhere to land because addiction had taken me to where I isolated myself from everyone. Um, I didn't have good friends and a lot of those, uh, a lot like Christian was talking about a lot of those, a lot of my friends got locked up. Um, some of them cleaned up and went away, would stop talking to me. You know, I was the type of addict that after, after a few run-ins with me, it just seemed like people didn't want me to be around. And so, um, yeah, I was struggling with the loss of cope of coping and then trying to find a new place to land. And, um, yeah, it was a, it was a daily thing. I know early recovery. I used to, I used to mark, I used to mark on the drywall, um, the days that I was putting together. And so I was starting to build, I was starting to build a little bit of 
confidence. That's the word. Something, something telling me that I could do it. Like each day showed me that I did it yesterday so I could do it again today. And that was kind of my mindset was just no matter what, no matter what happened, no matter how I felt, no matter what outside situation came about, like I wasn't going to get high over it. And, and then I had a bunch of people around me telling me the same thing. Um, I kind of, I kind of got something better to do, you know, something, mm-hmm. something more to live for and something better to do than the way I was living before. Thanks. Um, and I have another question. Um, so I have really close friends, like almost family members that are struggling and, um, what, what's your best advice, um, for just like seeing them try to get clean, but then keep going back after like a month or so, like how, how can we help them? Do we just like stand by them as much as we can and just support them? But, um, what do you think the best thing that we can do? Yeah, I think one, that's difficult. That's difficult. So if you're doing that, like great on you. Um, but definitely not abandoning those people. I know I know for me, loving somebody without enabling them is really hard. So I would say stand by them, but let them know, let them know the truth. You know, if they're in denial about um, what their addiction is doing to them, like you still will, you're still able to tell them the truth. Like, mm-hmm. like possibly this is destructive in your life. I can see it and I care about you and I want you to stop, but not abandoning them you know, abandoning them is, that's a tough thing. Um, yeah. Loving them through it. That's a wow. vague end, and it's probably not a very good one, but it's just what we do. You know, a lot of people come into recovery and they don't stay clean. Um, I try my best to make recovery look attractive and then treat people well. All right. Well, thanks. I will definitely try my best. <laughs> So. Yeah. Yeah. One of those things too, Sophia is like finding balance between the word codependency, you know, and contributing to, to someone's addiction. And it's, it's hard, um, you know, because, you know, there are just so many different levels of everything and we're not everybody's keeper as well. We can't force anyone to change. Um, but that's, that would be my input to mm-hmm. that question that you asked would be, you know, to find the balance between not giving up on them and being there to support them but also not being a codependent to where, you know, you're contributing and helping them make further excuses because I've seen some pretty deep levels of that happening on, you know, happening before where the other person is pretty much just involved in the, the person's addiction as, as the person themselves in different ways. You have any thoughts on that, Russ? Yeah, for sure. Like that's a perfect thing. You said the balance, because that's a tough, that's a tough act to, to follow. Um, keeping your relationship intact with somebody when you're telling them to do something that they're not doing, you know, like when, when you're like, you know, like I think you being clean would be better for you, but I love you. Even if you're not like, that's a tough Mm -hmm. thing, but definitely, um, staying on that line of not enabling. So, um, and that can come in many, that can come in many forms that can come in many forms. And it's something that I battle with myself, you know, because, 
like I tend to, I tend to, I'm a people person. I like people. I love people. Yeah. And so if they're not, if they're not well or doing what I think they should be doing, doesn't mean I'm going to hate them, but also mm-hmm. doesn't mean like I got to go help you cop or I got to do this or I got to do that. Like, no, this is my boundary. That's not a good idea, but I love you. And, you know, if you're going to go do that, go do it. And then like, talk to me when you're not in that state. It, it's, it's really, that's a yeah. tough one. And, you know, it's a, it's also like so broad, right? Because it could be like our partner, like our girlfriend or boyfriend, our spouse. It could be our parent. It could be our child. It could be our friend. It could be our sponsee. It could be your sponsor. Maybe. I mean, there's a lot of different, you know, yeah. where the, where these relationships yeah. are intersecting with each other. And so there's no perfect answer to that question. It's uh, something that we could probably create a whole podcast on and talk about it every week. Um, but yeah, I think we like, I think that one of the things we do well just by like this podcast, for example, is allowing the stories to be told and putting that out there for, for people to hear when, when Russ and I were going through it, we wouldn't have had something like this. We wouldn't be able to look up and hear somebody else's story. Most likely there was no YouTube. There was no podcast. There was no accessibility to that. And maybe that's what forced mm-hmm. us or contributed us to, you know, being going out there all the time as well. Cause that's where you had to go to get it. Uh, you wanted a story about recovery Well, you're going to have to go, you're going to have to go get it. Um, mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's take some audience, some listener questions. Um, we already have a couple in the chat. If you would like to call in, you can call in and, and talk to us for a bit or ask a question. And uh, so we'll get to you, Willow, just a second. Let's, uh, let's uh, take Linnell's question. What if someone just doesn't align or fit in with the recovery community in a small town? without any options. Are there lots of people that base their whole tribe on an online community? Well, I think, I think that people do. I know, I know for instance, like I I mentioned, I mean, I saw this question pop up and so I was trying to kind of address it and some of the stuff I was saying. Um, But I know that there, there are home groups as far as the recovery community, there are home groups that started in the pandemic that have remained that home group. It is an online meeting. It's an online community. Um, and they have people from all over the world in those, in those chats and in those zoom meetings. And it seems to work for them. It seems to work for them. Um, and they're doing it without the human touch. They're doing it without the direct eye contact. And, um, I, I think it's possible. I think it's possible for sure. And I think, I think, yeah, it seems like I meet people every once in a while that don't really seem to fit in with the recovery community, but they want their lives to be better. And so it's like, they're going to find their own way. They're going to find their own way. And if I can help them in some way, shape or form, then I definitely will help them in whatever way I can, you know, support them and in their progress and, try to love them through what they're going through. But yeah, not everyone that comes into recovery, as far as I do recovery, fits in with their personality. It just doesn't seem like they like it. Yeah, and one of the things I just wanted to draw a contrast to is, you know, like uh, we've been talking a lot about Utah. And uh, you heard Russ say earlier about, he mentioned Davis County. Well, if you look at Northern Utah, you basically have Weber County, which is where we're at right now in Ogden, and then Davis County and then Salt Lake County. But it's all, in Utah, it's all kind of one big like it, there's different towns and cities and counties, 
But if Russ doesn't like what's available in Ogden, he could easily go to, to Davis or to Salt Lake County and, and do that. But in Alaska, Alaska is so spread out. Many communities you have to fly in and fly out. And even the ones, some of them you have to drive. Like what's the population of Valdez? Do you know? Um, yes. So we're a very tourist town. So summertime, it's close to 4,000. And then when we get back to winter, it's closer to 3,000. Yeah, same with Juno's bigger, so. but yeah, like same thing. The population goes up significantly in the summer. But the point is here, you know, like mm-hmm. if you wanted to be in recovery in Valdez, for example, with, you know, you're going to know everybody that's in there. You know, your business probably going to be out there to some degree. I mean, we yeah. count on anonymity, but everybody doesn't always respect mm-hmm. that, especially when they get out to using again. Um, so it's just a whole different yeah. ball game, right? Like um, people don't have the flexibility. So I think that in Alaska, I mean, hopefully people can find communities within their own community, but I think in Alaska, that online option is really beneficial mm-hmm. because if you didn't fit in or you weren't comfortable with that, well, then you could find another community somewhere else. And uh, one of the other things that I've noticed, I uh, had a guy on here, one of my first, I can't remember what number it was, but um, he talked about... Um, the red road to recovery, which is a 12, I think it's 12 step program, but it's, uh, they, they changed it a little bit to fit indigenous values. And I thought that was really cool, you know, to provide a different path for some, for people that may not want to go down the ones that are already there. Cause one of my criticisms of 12 step programs without going into detail, like AA and NA would be just that they've kind of stayed the same in since the beginning of their time. And so things evolve and things change. The world's changed. And so not saying they're not useful or beneficial. I'm just saying that uh, we need to like kind of push it forward, I think, in, in some ways. And I think having these online uh, meeting options for, for people that live in small communities and other people, um, but also having these different ones, you know, the, these different. I know there's a smart recovery thing. I'm not that I know what it is, but I have never been there or anything. So I can't really speak to it. Um, but the Red Road to Recover, I've heard other ones like, you know, Christian based or religion based and and things like that. And so. I think what we need to do as, as people that are in, invested in this kind of thing is, um, you know, going back to Russ's ideas, we need to write our own story instead of having, um, not saying that, you know, uh, the authors of, of, of the big book can't uh, contribute to our lives or our knowledge or our wisdom, but we can write our own stories as well. And I think this is what we're doing through podcasts. But so I encourage all of us is to find ways to write, to, create our own paths and write our own stories. If we talked about what's not working for recovery, well, if it's not working for you or for us, um, then let's change it. And let's make, maybe not even change is maybe not the right word, but let's evolve it or create other opportunities or other options. And we can do that. Um, It can just be hard. Change is hard. You know, we like what's familiar oftentimes. And so it can be hard. Um, Any uh, thoughts from you two on that? Um, yeah, I wanted, I wanted to mention something to you. Um, I, and I was kind of thinking that I was kind of thinking about this when we were talking yesterday, you brought up the Salt Lake County, the Davis County, the Northern Utah, um, and wanting something different than the 12 step programs. And I'm, I'm one of those people, like I get, I get bored in 12 step. So, and that's usually when I go out and live for a while and try a different way. Um, but like it seems like in in Utah in those different counties, there's a lot of things popping up. Like we have a we have here, there's one called Fit to Recover, 
And they meet, they're not 12-step, but they meet on a regular basis. They work out, they'll do CrossFit, they'll have a meeting where they talk about what's going on with them. There's another one called Addict to Athlete, similar setup where they meet, they're going to go work out, maybe they'll do 5Ks and 10Ks and half marathons maybe. Uh, there's a lot of different nonprofit things that start up like that that aren't 12-step but that help people in what they feel like they need. And so um, so if, if somebody's listening that is interested in starting something like that in their community, it seems to be effective for some. And I know for, for this area, there's a lot of different options. Like it's not just about 12-step. Yeah, and you just gave me – I had a light bulb go off in my head, you know, um design the courses that I teach. And the most recent one was the one I'm teaching now, substance abuse theories and treatment. And um, I want to, I'm going to evolve the course next time to uh, either create an option or create the final project for them to actually find something different and expand on it or, you know, report to us so that we know about it and we can pass that information. Cause I didn't know about those things you're talking about. Um, and so, yeah, the light bulb went off. I'm going to really explore that in the future and see how we can broaden those things for, for our communities. Um, let's take a call. Let's take our call from Willow. And then we'll, I know Kim said we answered it, but we can, we can explore it a little bit more. What's up, Willow? Can you hear us? Yeah. Well, there's, there's plenty, there's plenty of Mormons here. Um, there's, and there's plenty of, like, there's options in the, in the church for recovery. And so that's one thing, but there's, but there's so many other options here now. And it seems like it's getting much more diverse in Utah with, uh, as far as the religious side and, and beliefs like that, that it seems like there's plenty of options for someone to get clean or find recovery here that that doesn't have to do with the Mormon religion. And and to be honest, I missed the first part of the audio on that. I had to re-click so that the mic would work. And so I caught like the last part. Um, so I don't know if I missed anything in the beginning part of your question or your call. Yeah. 